Hello, AJT readers. This is Josh Levitsky, and uh, we are here today to do the October 2020 podcast for the AJT highlights. And with me today, as always, is Roz Manon from University of Nebraska Medical Center. And today we have one of our AJT editorial interns. Uh, Melissa Swee is a clinical transplant nephrologist at University of Iowa. We'll be going over a couple papers with us. Want to welcome both of you. Thanks, Josh. Very excited yeah. to be here this month. And thank you Absolutely. for having me. Absolutely. Wonderful. Okay. So as always, uh, this month is a little bit lighter. Uh, we have four papers to go over that were editorial picks uh, by the editor. And uh, just to go over the plan here, Melissa is going to start us off with uh, two papers. Uh, the first one by Goff et al., a change of heart preliminary results of the U.S. 2018 adult heart allocation revision. And then the second one will be by Corbage uh, et al., beyond 10 years with and without an intestinal graft, present and future. There's an editorial there by Alexander Promer. And uh, then I'll be going over a paper by Butler et al., Discovery of non-HLA antibodies associated with cardiac allograft rejection and development and validation of a non-HLA antigen multiplex panel from bench to bedside. And there is an editorial from Annette Jackson and Carolyn Glass. And then Roz will finish the podcast off with a paper from Jane et al. Reversing donor-specific antibody responses and antibody-mediated rejection with ortezomib and balatacid in mice and kidney transplant recipients with a editorial from Gene Kwan and Stuart Konekli. So without further ado, why don't we get started? Melissa, if you want to start us off with the uh, Goff paper. Yes, I found this article very interesting. I wanted to start it off by giving kudos to the authors for their wonderfully punny title, uh, Change of Heart, Preliminary Results of the U.S. 2018 Adult Heart Allocation Revision. It comes from our friends out at UNOS, the United Network for Organ Sharing, and is first authored by Dr. Rebecca Goff. So to start off um, and give a bit of background before we go into the methods and results, in October of 2018, OPTN, the Organ Procurement and Transplantation Network, revised the U.S. Adult Heart Allocation Policy, given a number of deficiencies noted in the old system. Uh, let's start by discussing the prior U.S. heart allocation system. Prior to the recent modifications, heart transplant candidates fell into three statuses based on their severity, need for mechanical or pharmacological circulatory support, and complications related to the disease or treatment. The heart allocation system has been driven by predicted waiting list mortality and really depended on the physicians, centers, and hospitals to focus on transplant candidates who they felt would have successful post-transplant outcomes. Uh, status 1A was meant for patients in the intensive care unit on durable ventricular assist devices with complications. Status 1B was for patients on stable ventricular assist devices or inotropes and living at home. Uh, status 2 included other patients, including refractory ventricular tachycardia, refractory angina, retransplantation, congenital heart disease, and restrictive cardiomyopathies. Many of the people in status 2 had a high risk of mortality, which wasn't captured by their status. So there's the exception pathway allowed for programs to petition for a higher status. And geographic distribution also affected who received a transplant with candidates in the local donation service receiving priority. Um, as the number of active heart transplant candidates almost tripled from a little over 1,000 to just over 3,000, the number of status 1A candidates increased fivefold. And in 2014, 67% of heart transplants were status 1A. 
there is also regional variability in waitlist time, mechanical circulatory support device use, and intra-aortic balloon pump use, uh, high-dose inotropes, and post-transplant outcomes. So the geographic sharing scheme also favored less urgent candidates locally rather than more urgent candidates who in theory could even be potentially closer than uh, the, the, the hospital that was receiving um, that organ in the donor service area. Because of these noted deficiencies, uh, a revised six-tiered system was created to prioritize transplant based on several factors. Uh, these included predicted waiting list mortality or candidate's medical urgency, account for contemporary use of mechanical circulatory support devices, and include the most common reasons for exception requests in the prior standard criteria. Standardized definitions of cardiogenic shock, refractory ventricular arrhythmias, and durable ventricular assist device complications were also developed to decrease variability in clinical listing across the programs. Additionally, a broader distribution strategy was formed so that more acute and critically ill patients potentially further away from the donation service area would have access to the transplant before local lower urgency candidates. Uh, exception requests were also reviewed in a different region uh, than when, from where they were submitted. So the investigators retrospectively analyzed data from OPTN, which includes data on all donors, waitlisted candidates, and transplant recipients in the United States. The authors reviewed data for adult heart candidates, excluding heart lung candidates aged 18 years and older between October 2017 to October 2018, which is the one year immediately prior to the policy implementation, and then compared them to October 2018 to 2019, which is the year following the policy implementation. Uh, this allowed them to compare a pre and a post cohort. The authors note that a direct comparison of groups is not possible, but they attempted to match the cohorts through a number of different ways, uh, like the cohorts were exactly one year apart to try to eliminate seasonal differences. And then the status 1A in the old allocation system was paired with statuses 1, 2, and 3 in the new system. Status 1B was with status 4. And status 2 in the old system was with status 5 and 6 in the new system. So when they looked at the data, what did they find? There were just over 7,400 heart candidates ever waiting for a heart transplant in the pre-era, compared to a little less than 5,800 in the post-era. In the post-era, there is an increase in intra-aortic balloon pump use at the time of listing, about 4% versus approximately 9%. New policy, nearly 35% of patients added to the waiting list were added to highest priority, statuses 1 to 3, compared to about 25% being listed as status 1A in the prior system. Uh, so listeners, you may be wondering, did these changes lead to better risk stratification based on medical urgency? Overall, the new adult heart allocation system is achieving many of its goals. Uh, the total number of adult heart transplants increased by 78 from 2,954 to 3,032 transplants. Uh, the first goal of the new system was to enhance risk stratification so that the sickest patients were prioritized. To do this, heart transplants went to sicker patients rather than only those in the donation service area. This increased the median distance from the donor hospital and transplant center from 83 to 216 nautical miles, with an increase in total ischemic time from 3 to 3.4 hours. Despite this increase in total ischemic time, post-transplant patient survival was similar with 93.6% pre and 92.8% post. Following the implementation of the new policy, 78% of transplants were for the most medically urgent recipients, uh, statuses one through three, compared to 68% for the comparison group in the pre-era. Overall waiting list mortality was unchanged with 14.8 pre and 14.9 post deaths per 100 patient years. 
Another question you might have is whether these changes affected specific regions. Region 3, which includes Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Puerto Rico, uh, did experience the largest decrease from 346 transplants to 323. The largest increases were seen in regions 1, 7, and 10, which are in the far northeast and upper middle west or midwest. Like all studies, there are limitations. This was observational for one year prior to the new allocation policy and one year post, which is a short observation period. Since this paper was published, the OPTN has made several policy changes, including the use of donation service areas. Uh, these are now replaced uh, starting early this year with 250 nautical miles circles between the donor and transplant hospitals. Uh, for reference, a nautical mile is 1.151 miles, so 250 nautical miles is 288 miles or 463 kilometers, which is about the distance from the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago, Illinois, to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, Ohio, or for our West Coast listeners from Hollywood, California, to Las Vegas, Nevada, or for me sitting in Iowa City, Iowa, to Dr. Manon in Omaha, Nebraska. Overall, the patients with more medical urgency were more likely to receive a heart transplant following the new heart allocation policy, and there was a broader distribution for those medically urgent candidates. Great. First of all, I like the geography lesson <laughs> and the nautical miles. I did not know that. I thought nautical miles were the same as regular miles. So, But other than that, you did a great job reviewing uh, this paper. And um, the first thing that kind of brings to my uh, remembering the the very similar report i don't know if you remember Roz, last year from the lung group mm -hmm. uh or the the like the early results of those changes in the lung allocation system is sound very very similar to this which is increased numbers of transplants for the sickest patients but getting organs from further away and in the whole discussion was a little bit more of a negative spin, I, I, from what I remember, that the travel times and the burden on the the center's program and their surgical teams to go out and travel longer distances was a concern. But there, I think their outcomes were not as promising as this, um, which sounded really good to me in terms of um, getting the the heart recipient heart patients who need it the most uh, get transplanted. I, did they mention anything about, though, the, the economic uh, side of this with with travel? And I don't think there really was much in that in that paper about that, because that, that's the one, you know, give and take here in a way. Yeah, so that's an excellent question. It's not noted. We can see how many like the, the difference in uh, nautical miles um, on average uh, did increase, uh, but it doesn't talk about the economical burden. So that's, yeah. that's a good point. And I think, Josh, the paper you're referring to for lung involved the DSA change, um, getting rid yeah. of it. So that I think that was the discussion then. So it wasn't only the status change adjustment, but also the also limitation DSA. of DSA. And I actually was just on our UNOS regional meeting, and I hate to say it turned it off because it was all about heart. So I gather they were reading, reviewing the this um, nautical mile, you know, that which is being implemented everywhere, so for every organ. So um, I heard a lot of cons and some pros, and, you know, it's a contentious thing when you're in a region and you lose transplantable organs, but you have to sort of 
close your eyes and say that it's for the greater good and the other regions have more options. So I guess we'll stay tuned. Great summary though. I guess yeah, we well, can liver, move on. Liver will be, uh, liver will be next. We didn't change. We didn't change the way, uh, you know, it's always been meld, meld sodium, but mm -hmm. we changed the DSA, um, the, uh, you know, the concentric circles. So I'm sure that uh -huh. paper will be probably the next one to come kind of this preliminary pre and post uh, change review, but I think they're helpful to at least make sure things are, you know, going in a decent direction. So absolutely. All right. Well, let's uh, move to the intestinal paper uh, by Corbajal. Melissa, if you don't mind uh, reviewing that. Um, yeah, another fascinating paper, which really helps to shine light on a really understudied topic titled Beyond 10 Years with or Without Intestinal Graft, Present and Future? Question mark. Since 1985, there have been a little over 4,000 intestinal transplants from 97 centers worldwide, and there have been a lot of advances in the surgical techniques and medical management that have led to improved outcomes, including patient survival. Uh, it is up to 47% at 10 years now. Uh, but we really don't know the long-term outcomes for intestinal transplants, uh, especially digestive function and nutritional status. These are exceptionally important because they touch every aspect of patient health and well-being and guide the quality of life. To our listeners, uh, forgive me in advance. This article comes from France, and I will try to pronounce the names as best as I can. Uh, Dr. Sophie Carbage and colleagues from the Necker Infants Maladies Hospital in Paris report outcomes in digestive function and pathology 10 years after intestinal transplant. Uh, in their article, they also go into depth about the factors associated with patient and graft survival. Uh, this is one of the largest European long-term follow-up studies performed in children undergoing intestinal transplant, and the first that describes the long-term histology of intestinal grafts and patient outcomes after graft removal. Uh, so let's go into the methods first, and then we'll talk about the results and how they impact the practice of intestinal transplantation. Uh, the study is retrospective analysis of all patients who had an intestinal transplant between March 1989 and December 2007 at the Necker Infants Maladies Hospital. Uh, to give some context about when the first records were reviewed, the number one song on the billboard was Lost in Your Eyes by Debbie Gibson. And the number one movie... During my high school. <laughs> and the number one movie was Lean on Me, so I'm sure you remember that too, uh, starring yeah. Martin Freeman. Fast forward 18 years to December 2007, uh, Alicia Keys is number one with no one, and the number one movie was I Am Legend starring Will Smith. Uh, so that should give you a sense of how wide a net they cast to find these intestinal transplant cases. Uh, they then split these patients into three groups. The first group consists of those who are alive for more than 10 years with a functional allograft. Uh, second group uh, were those alive for more than 10 years without a functional allograft. And the third were patients who had passed away within 10 years post-transplant. Uh, initial immunosuppression was high-dose corticosteroids with tacrolimus, aiming for a trough of 15 to 20 nanograms per milliliter. The one exception was the longest post-transplant surviving patient who remained on cyclosporine. And since 2000, the induction therapy was basiliximab. Patients who had renal impairment or needed increased immunosuppression received azathioprine, mycophenolate mofetil, or sirolimus. For follow-up, patients underwent annual evaluations. These included nutritional status, assessment of renal clearance with renal biopsies as needed, gastrointestinal endoscopy, and stool balance analysis. For those who had a combined liver and small bowel transplant, liver biopsies were performed. So they got a lot of data out of these 71 patients, and they used sophisticated statistical methods to compare between the three groups. So for comparing growth velocity, they used a Wilcoxon signed rank test, for quantitative variables, they used the Cresco-Wallace, Mann-Whitney, or Welch's test as they deemed appropriate, 
And for categorical variables, they use the chi-square test or Fisher's exact test. And for metric variables, the Pearson correlation. So regardless, for all of these, a p-value of less than 0.05 was considered statistically significant. So let's go through the different outcomes. So one, improved graft survival is related to two different factors. The first was use of a three-drug regimen, including serolimus or mycophenolate mofetil. This was also associated with decreased graft rejection. The second was the inclusion of a liver graft. The liver transplantation was more beneficial to patients with Hirschsprung's disease or congenital enteropathy compared to short bowel syndrome. Unfortunately, among the group three patients, uh, those are the ones that didn't live uh, to 10 years with liver small bowel transplants have had died of early surgical complications. Two, when the investigators looked at group one, uh, that is the group of 10-year post-transplant survivors with a functional graft, the patients had a significantly better height percentile at their last follow-up compared to when they first received their transplant. Uh, physical growth did not correlate with intestinal absorption rates, renal clearance, graft rejection, or age at the time of transplant. Uh, additionally, all 26 patients in group one were weaned off of parenteral nutrition. Uh, three did require enteral nutrition due to oral aversion. Median intestinal absorption rates beyond 10 years were 91% for energy and 89% for fat. 21 of the 26 patients, that comes out to 81%, did have at least one micronutrient deficiency, and a third had iron deficiency. Five patients, or 21%, had urgency or nocturnal defecation despite the use of anti-motility agents, and additionally, five patients had non-infectious colitis. A total of 62% of patients had late digestive complications, and four patients, or 15%, had late acute intestinal graft rejection that was beyond nine years post-transplant. All cases of graft rejection were T-cell mediated with one admixture of both cellular and antibody mediated. Of the 17 patients who underwent liver small bowel transplant, 15 underwent a liver biopsy nine to 14 years after initial transplant. Three patients had acute graft rejection, and 35% of them, or six, developed signs of chronic graft rejection two to seven years post-transplant. Uh, looking at renal function, 13 of 23, or 57% of patients had a GFR less than 90, and two uh, less than 60. The oldest survivor, who also had received a retransplant, had required a renal transplant 20 years after the first intestinal transplantation. And 12 out of 16 biopsies that were performed 5 to 11 years post-transplant did show signs of calcium urine inhibitor toxicity. Other outcomes, 19% uh, developed post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorder, 23% developed autoimmune disorders, including hemolytic anemia, thrombocytic purpura, Evans syndrome, and neutropenia. One developed uh, hyper-eosinophilic syndrome, and 19% developed asymptomatic eosinophilic esophagitis. Uh, psychiatric disorders, uh, which was, um, I guess, consistent with other uh, transplants, affected 31% of the patients, and three of whom reported drug or alcohol additions. Of the patients aged 18 to 29, at last follow-up, 74% were pursuing education and 16% were employed which is a lot. And then the third big uh, factor that they looked at for group two, which were survivors beyond 10 years without a functional intestinal graft, um, all were on home parental nutrition. Uh, six patients fulfilled the criteria for intestinal failure associated liver disease. And among eight liver biopsies performed at five to 14 years post-transplant and 1.3 to 10 years following graft removal, uh, seven had showed hepatic fibrosis with a score greater than F3 and 2, and six had hepatic steatosis. So you may ask, what are the big takeaways from this paper? 
Uh, well, first, the quality of life was acceptable with most adults pursuing education, but psychiatric disorders and learning difficulties were highly prevalent. Social conditions were worsened by repeated hospitalizations and micronutrient deficiencies were common. But regardless, there was improved growth velocity beyond 10 years post-transplant. The use of a three-drug regimen was associated with improved graft survival and freedom from graft rejection. Uh, the liver transplant was found to be beneficial for intestinal graft survival, although less for patients with short bowel syndrome, although the authors did know that higher mortality from surgical complications. There are some limitations to the study, which the authors note themselves in the paper. The number of patients, 71, is pretty impressive for intestinal transplants, but still a little low to draw definitive conclusions. And they noticed some missing data, which it is retrospective after all, um, which prevented the authors from identifying other predictive factors for patient and graft survival. So as a whole, when it comes to intestinal transplants, stable digestive function is possible to achieve in the long term with improved growth velocity and reassuring histology of intestinal graft. Um, it does require regular monitoring of micronutrients and early psychological assessment. Finally, the data suggests the use of serolimus in these patients. Uh, there's a lot more detailed information that's in the paper itself, uh, so I do definitely encourage listeners to take a look. Yeah, thanks, Melissa. That was a great review. I, um, you sort of look at this and you wonder how does a paper like this get into AJT, and I think the reason is, is you know, it is intestinal transplant is the smallest numbers by far and away of any other organ, and so having data like this long term is is helpful to just understand that you know, how do things look down the road for these patients? I, the, the editorial, I thought, was the statement that there is many uh, kidney transplants in one day as there are intestinal transplants in one year in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, it just, just tells you that right there. I'm, I'm wondering, though, do you think that this, um, some of this seemed to, you know, sort of a bit encouraging, I think, or at least for the patients that do well, um, they can have long-term success. Do you think that this might uh, swing the kind of tide going upwards in terms of centers considering, considering opening intestinal transplant programs? Or do you think this more, you know, this may lead to some more referrals to, you know, higher volume centers, which, you know, there's not that many in the U.S., but maybe, maybe this will shed some light that this is not as negative as we thought as before? Yeah, I, I definitely hope so, because the the people who ended up having either the intestinal graft with or without the liver transplant, you know, the, the majority of them were living past 10 years. Um, they're living their life. They're getting education. They're getting jobs. Um, they're not requiring parental nutrition. I think their quality of life is definitely improved. So I, I do think that um, this paper at least for me, convinces me that I, if I have a patient who requires intestinal graft, I, I would definitely uh, refer them. Yeah, I'm not sure, Josh, it's, it's going to herald the vast opening of a lot of programs, but I do think it's encouraging. There's some things about it that I find fascinating, like, you know, calcineurin inhibitor toxicity in native kidneys with normal GFR, and how long would they have lasted, and why they have a biopsy in the first place? Was there another reason? Did they have acute kidney injury transiently? But I, I think this is one of those graphs that's probably, it's like BCA. It's best done at a place that really has yeah. the team and the multidisciplinary nature and the wherewithal to do it, because there's that whole intestinal rehab aspect. And I think 
it's, you know, kidney is almost, I hate, and liver now, it's like sort of like everybody thinks, oh, it's a slam dunk. But I think those processes are in place and the repetitive nature of the volume gets people up to speed within a week, you know, very, very quickly. Whereas with the intestinal, you really need to keep your team going. And with the low volume, it, it's hard to sort of break new people in. And, and so I, I actually love the pay. I love seeing things like this in AJT. And I'm so glad that uh, the group um, sent it to us so that we would uh, be able to enjoy it. And, and again, give a broader um, appreciation, as Melissa pointed out. And thank you also for your reordering us about the years, 89 and 2007. I forgot about I Am Legend, much less lean on me. All right. <laughs> All right, great. Well, thank you, Melissa. Why don't I move on to the uh, cardiac paper on non-HLA antibodies. Um, so this was uh, Dr. Carrie Butler and colleagues. Corresponding author is uh, none other than Elaine Reed, who's obviously an international expert, HLA expert, UCLA, and their colleagues were also at other centers. Um, I'll get that, get to that in a minute. But anyway, this was um, a really uh, very interesting, well done, elegant study that took the uh, significant interest in looking at uh, antibodies that are circulating that uh, are non-HLA antibodies that maybe targets to the graft, such as the, the endothelium or fibrosis or other mechanisms in the graft that are not uh, targeted against um, HLA. And there's, a, there's been an interest in this in other organs, and there has been some association with non-HLA antibodies in other organs, such as kidney and liver. And so this group put together a large effort for some discovery and validation of um, a panel of non-HLA antibodies to see if it could correlate well with uh, the presence or absence of rejection and heart transplant. And um, just like we just finished talking about intestinal transplant, um, both heart and intestine are, are two organs where they do biopsies pretty routinely um, because you really don't have a biochemical test that can detect the sign of graft dysfunction. So outside of some of the novel uh, gene expression, commercial gene expression assays or cell-free DNA that are um, out there now, but still most, most places are doing cardiac biopsies to detect rejection. So you have that sort of advantage in these, particularly this study where you have a lot of biopsies, rejection, no rejection, where you can correlate uh, assays within the blood to these outcomes. And so this is, I encourage everybody to read this paper because it really goes in very deeply into the antibody assessments. Um, I'm just going to give a little bit of an overview. So they basically started off with a small discovery cohort of 12 patients, uh, cardiac allograph rejection patients at UCLA. They had this large panel uh, protein microarray of 366 non-HLA antibodies. And they found within those, I believe it was, let's see what it was, this was like a figure one, a certain number of non-HLA antibodies that were higher in the rejection group. It was 19 than the non-rejection group at, um, where they, they also had a control group. And they also added in 48 proteins identified from the literature that were associated with solid organ transplant rejection just to 
um, increase their pool and not be so conservative. And so they took this panel of um, 67 proteins and um, fortunately they, UCLA and a number of other centers were involved in a multi-center uh, Novartis study, cardiac transplant Novartis study where they, they had um, uh, lots of samples on patients collected serially up to 24 months they said a range of one to nine samples. And so they were, um, they took this panel and compared those who had rejection versus non-rejection. There was about a hundred, uh, a little bit over a hundred patients. And with the idea of taking this panel that they discovered from the initial cohort and looking at um, whether it validated, um, and they were able to find 18 of those uh, 67 that were higher, uh, significantly higher in uh, non-HLA antigens than in the non-rejection. And when they um, adjusted to remove the effects of HLA antibodies, uh, just to look at an independent effect of the non-HLA antibodies, there were 10 that were higher in the rejection group versus the non-rejection group. And they did some validation with this CART analysis, and uh, they found that um, there were four of them that were kind of new, that were not really um, ever reported previously uh, to be non-HLA antibodies. Um, the other 14 had been previously been reported, like uh, antimyosin, um, some of the endothelial antibodies. And so then they finally, they went back to a later cohort at UCLA to do a kind of a, another sort of external validation. And um, they were able to find also that this panel was pretty well validated in, a, in another cohort of uh, UCLA patients, which uh, so they're, they're really doing a lot of levels of uh, validation here, multi-center, single center to come up with this, this panel of non-HLA antibodies that correlate with, with rejection. And so, um, and then there's a, a really nice editorial by Annette Jackson, um, just going over really reviewing the paper very nicely and kind of putting it into the context of the field. Clearly the, the amount of work that this group did to, to validate these and to, to kind of correlate them mechanistically was, was, was quite impressive. Certainly, there was a lot of biological mechanistic ties with these non-HLA antibodies to to the graft. The one question that that always comes up with these um, large studies where they're finding uh, correlations is whether these antibodies are the cause of injury or the or just released during the time of like a T cell mediated rejection. And, you know, that mechanistic studies need to be done to kind of uh, tease that out, which can be very challenging to do. And of course, uh, you know, how would this be used potentially in practice? Certainly, there, there, I found one of the most interesting parts was that in one analysis, the non-HLA antibodies and the HLA antibodies uh, seem to synergistically um, increase the risk of rejection compared to one each of another. So this may be additive in terming the risk risk profile. Of course, there's nothing on, you know, getting rid of these antibodies. And, um, and certainly I'm sure phoresis could do that. But, um, you know, how do you modify these outcomes based on these antibodies? But um, certainly this is a great first step, uh, big step in determining these. And I know other organs are very interested in these too. 
but I, I really liked it and, and thought uh, I'm sure there's going to be a lot more that we're going to see from, from this group and others uh, looking at, um, you know, these, these non-HLA antibodies. That's a great summary, Josh. You know, I know you didn't mean to overlook it, but uh, Annette Jackson and Carolyn Glass at Duke have an editorial, and they have a really nice figure, figure one, that's sort of... Oh, yeah, it's beautiful. It's a great cartoon. It sort of frames the, the conversation, or at least if you don't read the paper, not that I'm saying you shouldn't, but um, if you're busy, um, you should at least take a look at it and just the whole concept of understanding what these antibodies may be responding to and, and the theory behind them. But I thought it was a fascinating study, granted small numbers, but I, I, I sort of enjoyed that figure eight where they had sort of overlap of targets between different tissues and, or, you know, both, you know, UVEX, which are just, you know, umbilical endothelium, but also looking at the, the similarities and also differences across tissues. There's a lot of similarities. So which is, I think, kind of surprising, particularly, well, you know, I mean, surprising, but not surprising. It's a lot, a lot of it is related to vascular, probably antibodies that are in the vasculature of all these organs. And mm -hmm. yeah, no, it's a very cool study, I thought. All right. Well, I think we're at the tail end here. Uh, Roz, oh, my gosh. I always get the bottom. I always get the last get, yeah. chance and I always have to best. rush. <laughs> <laughs> That's become last. But. The cleanup, the cleanup position. So the the last paper is certainly not the least. So uh, this is a paper by Jane and colleagues. It's uh, it's kind of a cool paper because it has a mouse component. So it it has the basic science, and then it has a whole clinical component. So anybody can find some interest. But again, uh, the lab is uh, University of Chicago, Anita Chong, and the clinical program is Ohio State with Ron Pelletier. Again, the unmet need is addressing is, is treatment of antibody media rejection, and so this is a nice translational uh, method. Again, um, these authors highlight the combined therapy, which may sound odd, of a proteasome inhibitor bortezomib with co-stimulatory blockade. And I know those of you that are co-stim blockade haters say, oh my God, they're always looking for something to do with that drug. But here may be like a really kind of niche way um, to encourage people to, to think about what the drug does. So again, the recognition that co-stimulatory signals are needed to maintain germinal center B cell responses, again, the interaction with T follicular helper cells. And so, uh, you know, you can utilize CTLA-4 IG in mouse models and um, really mitigate those germinal center responses in the generation of plasma cells and memory B cells, at least in mice. And certainly there's, uh, you guys are familiar with clinical studies in kidney where you use CTLA-4 IG or, or bilatacept and you see that those patients on that treatment don't seem to develop de novo DSA as frequently as individuals that are not on the drug. And it was always speculated, well, maybe it's because they're adherent to their, their therapy for the first time because it's IV. True, but there may be a, a mechanistic reason, and this paper examines that. So their hypothesis in this paper is that elimination of plasma cells is needed to get rapid removal of antibody but an additional step is needed to prevent the rebound and further development of, of plasma cells. Um, and certainly in clinical trials, particularly by groups like Steve Woodle's group, 
uh, in Cincinnati that if you use plasma cell treatment, you, you, you know, inhibitors, PI inhibitors, some inhibitors, you do decrease uh, plasma cells, but, you know, after a couple of rounds of treatment, you can see rebound of donor-specific antibody, and and there's then that may be in part due to what's called proteasome resistance, but it may also be um, the fact that there is still ability to activate these cells in the germinal center. So I'll cut to the chase and say that um, Dr. Chong's group used an anim- uh, mouse models of both looking at naive mice and and at the development or the presence of different subtypes or of plasma cells, and then used a donor-specific transfusion to develop an allo response, a sensitization response, and then also did like a memory response where they did it twice and and demonstrated that treatment with, with PI, with proteasome inhibitor alone versus combination of therapy, and that the combination was more effective in reducing donor-specific antibody uh, both mature plasma cells fell in the different models when they use combination therapy. Donor-specific antibody or antibody-producing cells in the marrow and spleen, uh, by the numbers are small, also went down significantly. And then in parallel are five, six cases of early, well, I'll say five cases of early active uh, antibody rejection one sixth case that was late that was greater than uh, 30 days. And these patients were treated with a combination of proteasome inhibitor uh, and bilatacept and, you know, as well as quote-unquote standard care plus and IVIG. And treatment with the combined therapy led in general to a decline in donor-specific antibody and the prevention of development of DSA and follow-up. Now, note that just customer-tried blockade alone doesn't drop DSA. This is a combination effect of both therapies. And there's a nice, so it, it's pretty dramatic. It's very interesting. Um, a couple of comments that I noticed is that, you know, these, these responses in at least five of the patients represent probably amnestic or memory responses. Granted, these people were not sensitized, but there was some reason why this happened, and maybe it was just not detected. And so we tend to think of patients with early active ABMR within the first 30 days in a memory response, pretty responsive to therapy. But they also had this late patient who developed, you know, you know, almost a year out, developed these memory responses, which are very hard to treat, particularly the class two. And they were able to see a decline in donor-specific antibody, which is impressive, and and you know, sort of stabilization of renal function as well. The editorial by um, Jean Kwan and, and Stu Konechly, These are these uh, investigators are pioneers in non-humate primate studies. Uh, comment about the overall strategy and also what's known about costimulatory blockade in terms of developing or blocking the development of donor-specific antibody. And I think their emphasis point here is a couple things. In addition to my comments about these rejection responses being so early and acute, and perhaps the most likely to be responsive, they also point out that, that the frequency of them in this program may be related to their maintenance therapy, which is, is non-CNI based in the beginning, and um, non-depletional induction. And so that combination may have led to the triggering of these memory responses, perhaps, by being maybe less effective immunosuppression. And they also recognize, as did I, that the mechanisms of where antibody is being developed in terms of these antibody-producing cells, is it in the blood, is it in the marrow, is it in the spleen, or is it in the transplant, aren't fully understood. Because if you look at the figures in the mouse model, it's clear that 
there's a lot of activity in, in the marrow. And typically, um, you know, when we're doing antibody-mediated rejection treatments or trials, we're not doing bone marrow biopsies. And finally, I think they emphasize that it's probably not going to be one drug. I mean, people have used rituximab, which targets B cells, germinal center, plasma cell therapies, you know, complement that certainly combination therapy may be the way to go. And we have sort of a general standard of care of PLETS and IVIG that we could do trials. And another novel thing that they had recommended or suggested is maybe doing, looking at um, data mining, looking at large data sets from EMRs. And that certainly would be an opportunity to design a trial based on those that information. So this was an uplifting paper for folks in the kidney world where you are dealing with this problem Maybe not so much in the acute setting unless you're doing a desensitization or a highly sensitized cohort, but at least uh, some sense that there might be some viable therapy for active uh, ABMR. Yeah, I was wondering if you thought this would change your practice at all if you have a, a patient with acute AMR that wasn't responding initially, do you think you might go this route? Yeah, and you know, we've talked about it. You know, the the, the problem with proteasome inhibitors is only a few centers have used them. There's a pediatric randomized trial that didn't show, um, there was some adverse events, obviously, and, and hard to see a benefit because the numbers were small. I, I think Woodle's group in Cincinnati, who we've highlighted on this podcast at least previously, has the most experience and has kind of a standard of care protocol that they've implemented with IVIG and Plex. And so I actually have a copy. It's a clinical protocol. It's, you know, available if you could talk to Stephen Woodle in a nice way. But he's, he and uh, Simon Trubley are happy to share it. Um, again, you know, it's an off-label use, so you have to make sure that the powers that be at your center support you using it. And it's carfilizumab, which has less neurotoxicity. So I think more of us that were shying away from bortezomib initially said, you know, maybe that's an option. Again, I think one of the struggles that we have is getting this paid for. Yeah, so it's I great that it's, pricey. <laughs> it's not cheap and, and you're using it off label. And so um, it's one thing to consent a patient clinically and say, hey, we're going to do this. It's, it's this or we're not where we're done. But I think that it's exciting to see different groups looking at this using different models, complementary models of, you know, mice and people, mice, non-human primates. So I think for that, that, you know, getting closer and having effective therapy is really, you know, it's kind of an optimistic October podcast. Yeah. Wonderful. All right. Well, you guys, thank you so much, uh, particularly Melissa, for doing an outstanding job uh, reviewing these papers that are not in your field. But, but I, I hope you learn. We, I always learn something on these podcasts. And it's always, I always think that going outside of your own field and reviewing papers is just uh, helpful to your own practice and your own review of, uh, you know, journal articles. It, it, I hope you learned something. I certainly did. Yes, I And uh, wonderful. Thank you, guys. And until next time. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 